our voice. Our future. Join us as we explore the real power of Youth Rising. Youth Rising. The Youth Rising podcast by NCS. Hello, I'm Musim Ahmed and welcome back to Youth Rising by NCS. This is a podcast for young people by young people. And in this podcast, you're going to hear youth-driven stories from right across England about the issues that matter to young people right now. In this episode, we look at the effects that the music industry has had on artists' mental health. And we're going to be hearing from John McEldery. In the second part of this episode, we actually held a panel discussion to talk about awareness around non-binary and focusing on the North and South divide. But just to remind you guys that this podcast is happening all thanks to NCS. NCS is a summer program for 16 to 17 year olds that helps turn all those no you can't into no, we can. A lot of the times we hear a song from an artist and we think we know them really, really well. But actually, we don't. What we don't see is their personal and private lives. And despite how often they post on their social media, on their Instagram stories and Snapchat, we don't see them for when they're upset or when they're depressed, or when they don't want to get up in the morning. And that's why the music industry is struggling with mental health, because 73% of musicians have faced some form of mental health struggle in their lives, and one in three said that they have experienced panic attacks. In 2009, Joe McElgy won the X Factor when he was only 18 years old. He released a single called The Climb, and that reached number one on the charts. He sold 2 million records worldwide and has even sold out his entire UK tour. We managed to talk to Joe about his career, the highs, the lows and the impact that the music industry has had on his mental health. So have a listen. Hello, so I am Joe McEldry. I'm a singer, entertainer, jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> and I auditioned for The X Factor in 2009. I was 18 years old. And in April of 2009, I decided to audition for the show. Did all of the auditions, the boot camps, the judges' houses, the 12 live shows. And in December 2009, I was very lucky enough to be voted the winner, which is, it was an amazing time. It was a very exciting time. It was an intense time. You know, it was a lot of heavy schedules to follow and a life-changing adjustment. Yeah, I started this journey of a career in music, which began with very, very kind of high instant success, which in itself is a very kind of huge thing to get used to. So I began, went straight onto the promotional trail of the first single, The Climb, and was entered into a, not by choice, a very kind of highly publicised chart battle with Rage Against the Machine, which became one of the most historical chart battles of all time. Haven't had no clue what that meant. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of my, uh, shall we say, roller coaster of a career. So the following year was kind of amazing, but also very intense. And, you know, I was on this treadmill trying to find my feet. I came back after Christmas after having a little break, went straight onto the X Factor tour. We did a 57 day sold out arena tour at every venue that I'd probably ever dreamed of playing. And I got to play in in the first kind of two months of my career, which was mind boggling. You know, you, you're stood there six months previous, you want to be a singer. And all of a sudden you're stood on a, underneath a stage waiting to go out in, in front of four sold out audiences at the O2 Arena, one of, you know, it was, it was madness. Um, and, and the next year was kind of, had the same narrative really all the way through, you know. I moved down to London to a flat where the record label had put us to record an album. 
I released my first album in the September. And that was kind of the start of navigating through the music industry. You know, I was working a lot of hard hours. Um, it was it was an exhausting schedule, but fun, but intense, you know. In February 2011, um, I was made aware that I was being dropped by Psycho, which was my first record label. So pretty much all in all, a year after huge success, um, they decided they didn't want to take up the second option for the album, which for me was a mixed feeling. Part of us was really relieved in some way um, because I'd realised we weren't on the same path. We weren't on the, We didn't have the same end goal. I think they wanted to have huge success and not really care how long it lasted. And I think I wanted to have some sort of longevity. You know, I wanted to still be doing this job when I was 30 and not just have a huge number one album and just literally be a flash in the pan. I wanted to create a career of lots of different avenues, you know. So that sense, I was relieved. In the other sense, I had lots of offers on the table, music, TV, musical theatre wise. But I was a bit like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I've never been in this industry before. Where do I go? How do I navigate? Who do I trust? I was lucky I had my mum with us who travelled everywhere with us for the first two years of my career. So I had support behind the scenes. But in terms of kind of navigating through that, you know, I think in any other job you have point of contact, you have a human resources. See, you work in a call centre or a bank or a, the police service or wherever. You know, if you have a problem like that or an issue or you're you know, unfairly let go of or whatever, you have a point of contact to go to and say, this is my issue, what do I do? There's nothing like that in the music industry. So it's kind of just grit your teeth together, get on with it and learn on the job. You know, there's no handbook, there's no A to Z to follow. So it was a, the the, the next few years, I, I then went on to a TV show called Popstar Opera Star, um, where I was fortunate enough to win the show. It was public vote and the public voted for us to win. I signed a, another major record deal and had a lot of success again, straight away with three more albums and solo tours, etc. But at the same time, with all that success that was going on behind the scenes, it was a little bit like a ping pong ball just bouncing off the walls because you're still uncertain. You're on that treadmill all the time, which gives you absolutely no time to process anything. You get in the car, you do a show, you finish the show, you get straight in another car and you're dealing with trying to find a new management team or you're trying to put an infrastructure in place for yourself whilst kind of being at the helm of it all, standing in front of the public and being like, everything's great, you know, look at all this success. So it was wonderful and it was exciting and I've got brilliant memories from them, but I did just feel for a long, long time, I was just bouncing off a load of walls, like just literally bang, bang, you know, right, yeah, okay, next direction. Okay, on to the next thing, you know, there was no, there was no time for reflection or kind of planning, really. I was just, you're just on a constant treadmill. They had a great success with with my next three albums. Um, I changed management team in the process of that, and those kind of those kind of years from about two thousand and twelve onwards were really for me about. I knew kind of how to navigate through the industry by that point. I knew the kind of the highs and lows. I'd kind of dealt with both. Um, and it was about kind of taking back some sort of control and becoming my own kind of not brands, not the right word, but being your own kind of, your own like empire almost where I owned everything. I owned all of my own merchandise. I put on all of my own shows so that I didn't have to kind of behold to 
things that I didn't want to be a part of, you know, I, like my love was singing and performing. And a lot of the first kind of years of, of my success were navigating through like the business parts of it that I didn't really want to be a part of. So I went away, I met with people and I, and I got together a team of people that I've now worked with for about six or seven years who, who I trusted, who, who then could take on that part of it. And I could solely focus on what I love doing, which was performing. And, you know, I'm heavily involved in business decisions now, but you can kind of, as you grow, you know, the one thing, the one thing that all of that did tell us and what I learned was that you had to grow up very quickly, which is only kind of a, it's been a benefit for me going forward because now, you know, not many industry things phases because I'm just like, oh yeah, okay, fine. I've dealt with that before. All right, next, on to the next thing. And and it doesn't become so, it doesn't take over your world as much now. I can kind of deal with them moments, certainly in business and in the music industry and just be like, yeah, okay, put that in a little box, sort that out, bam, done, move on, you know? It's not as scary, you know, you just, you learn how to kind of, how to deal with these things and you realise that there's really more to life than than work. In October last year, we went out on, um, I think was my seventh solo tour, I think it'll probably be now. Um, and it was the Impossible Dream Tour celebrating 10 years. And we did a very special show at a local theatre of mine where I actually used to work as a dishwasher. So it was a very full circle moment. And we did kind of a 10 year sit down of all of the video footage of all of the amazing things, because obviously in the last four years as well, I, I, I've kind of experienced a massive side of my career in musical theatre that wasn't there at the beginning and kind of just naturally happened alongside all of my solo stuff. So there was loads of stories to tell and share with the audience. We did like a big kind of sit down interview. I sang songs from every album that I've done. It was weird, you know, obviously all of my family were there. They were helping out backstage because they've been a part of it. All of my team of people that I've worked with, you know, sound engineers, production teams that have put on all the shows, me musicians, they were all there, songwriters that I've written with over the years, just people who've been involved in my career along the way. It was quite cathartic for me because I was talking about a lot of things, first of all, that people hadn't really heard because they'd just seen all the nice kind of glamorous parts of it and the celebratory things. Um, And also... I used to always say in the the, um, early days, people used to say it was, where do you want to be in 10 years? And I just used to want to say, I still want to do what I love doing, but I also want to still enjoy it. And I was sat there to assault our audience, telling all of the stories. And, you know, there were little kind of blips along the way that we were talking about. But overall, I was really just happy to be there, happy to see fans who've supported us from day one and along the way. And it was that moment of being like, oh, wow, like all of those tick lists that you wanted... You, you know, you're still doing something that you love. You've got so much variety in your career, but you're still happy. You're still enjoying it. You're still having a great time. You still get the same buzz. And I think it was one of those moments where you can just, if you could go back and tell yourself, you know, if I could have told myself in 10 years time, I would have been sat there and it all would have been fine. I would have been like, maybe I wouldn't have worried about it as much, you know? I think if I was to give anybody any advice going into the music industry would probably be to uh, have your head switched on in the sense of that, It's not all glittery lights and TV shows and fun, you know. I think people with a lot of, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I came from one of the biggest reality shows there is. You know, and I I love a reality show. I love to watch them. I love the singing competitions. I think we now see with the likes of Love Island and those things where people can just go onto a TV show and they sit in a house and essentially are just sat on camera 
doing nothing essentially. And they come out of there and all of a sudden they've got 2 million Instagram followers and they're thrust into this spotlight. It's made this view that, oh, I want to do that. And I think, you know, we've seen with people sadly taking their own lives with the pressures that fame brings. I think you have to be aware that fame is not a very nice thing. You know, yes, it's yes, it might look wonderful on a picture on a newspaper or on the Daily Mail online or wherever or an Instagram post. It's not real life. It's not real life. Nine times out of ten, it's orchestrated. And I've always treated fame with like a, I don't pay too much attention to it. For me, I know it's there. I know it exists. I treat it with respect. I don't abuse it. It's like a little kind of conscience that sits on my shoulder where I'm aware that it's there, but the minute you play into that game of like chasing it and chasing it and chasing it, it's it's the root of all evil. And you uh, and if I could advise anybody, go into the music industry because you love performing and you love singing because there's a lot of sacrifice that comes with it. There's a lot of hard work. There's huge, huge ups, but there's also a lot of downs as well, you know, and a lot of the time, you only get to see the up. So you look at somebody who's having massive success, but you have no idea of the navigation that they're trying to navigate through the music industry behind the scenes, you know? So I think you've got to be in it for the right reasons. Make sure you've got a good network of people behind you. You know, so I'm aware some people don't have support of families. Make sure you've got good friends that are, are there because they want to be there. They're not trying to just hang on your coattails and sponge off you or whatever. And just be aware that, Life is more important than an Instagram photo or how many followers you have. Because when that all goes or when that all disappears or at a time when that's not f feeding your soul, you've got to have an infrastructure behind you that is the true, you know, reason why you're there, you know, and the true reason of what your happiness is. And that isn't going to be 2 million Instagram followers. I think people underestimate how, like, enormous the music industry is you know it's a worldwide industry and every kind of section of the industry has another industry inside of it you know for example you have a whole a whole section of people you know millions if not billions of people working on streaming then you have a whole promotional side of things then you have a whole A&R side which is the selection process of where songs are written whether you do covers of songs then you have a bunch of songwriters then you have music managers it, it that you are a little dot in a huge moving, you know, jigsaw. And um, it's important that you realise that it's very, very easy to get washed up in all of that. Um, and if you're, if, you're, if you're not working with the right people or if you kind of sign contracts that, that own you, you know, and it's very easy to become washed up in that crazy world. Um, I've been very fortunate that I kind of, from the early days, uh, I picked up on the whole thing about contracts um, and uh, stopped signing onerous contracts. I stopped signing things that would would limit what control I had on everything. Um, or if I was going to sign something like that, I uh, would sign for a very, very short period of time. Then if I didn't enjoy it, I could be like, do you know what? Thanks for the opportunity. I'm out of here. You know, and it's important to realise that if you keep your head above the water with it all and you're sensible about your decisions and you're not just chasing money, don't chase money, don't chase success. If you work sticking it for the end game, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. You know, I think a lot of people come into this industry and they come out the gate and they sprint, 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 burn out straight away. And then before you know it, 
they've lost everything because nobody can keep up that momentum. You know, you've got to, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to take care of your own mental health and not push yourself beyond your limitations. Um, and make sure, like I keep saying, make sure you've got good people. You know, I'm lucky that 10 years down the line, I still get to do something I love every day because first of all, I had, you know, my mom and dad were very, very supportive and very realistic about the industry which allowed me to kind of conduct myself in a way that, you know, wasn't going to burn us out and wasn't going to put us in a position where, you know, I'd be working with, you know, for want of a better word, vile people. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and 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 it is possible, you know, it is possible to have a very amazing, successful career, um, but also, you know, not jeopardise your own mental health. So if you are thinking of getting into the music industry, I wish you the best of luck um, and just keep your eyes open. Thank you so, so much to Joe McEldry for his contribution. We're now going to move on to our special section of this podcast where we actually get the team to reflect on their process making the podcast, you know, what they learn, what challenges they face and even what they're going to do next time. It's basically a look at the story behind the story. So Eva produced the Joel McEldry interview. Have a listen to what she had to say. I think that drafting questions for the subject of mental health in the music industry was interesting to me as there are so many aspects to being a musician that definitely can take a toll on one's own mental health. I myself am a musician and I find that the the process of practicing requires a lot of self-discipline and also can be quite lonely because in the end it's it's really just you who has to motivate yourself to practice and play and if you aren't part of some orchestra or group um then you might just be doing that alone in your room the youth rising podcast by ncs The Youth Rising Podcast by NCS. You're listening to Youth Rising by NCS. In this episode of Youth Rising, we just heard from Joe McEldry and he talked about his experience being in the music industry and the effect that had on his mental health. So moving on to the next segment of our podcast, let's talk about non-binary awareness. So in recent years, there's been a lot of words floating around and it can sometimes seem a bit confusing. A lot of people have unanswered questions like, what's the difference between gender fluid and non-binary? Or some people might ask, what does being transgender mean to someone? Or who decides my gender? And a lot of these questions come because I think the information isn't updated enough. And I personally think that sex and relationships education isn't even taken seriously enough in school. It's like a one-off lesson during PSHE. And this can be especially upsetting for the LGBT community who feel that there's not enough inclusivity in the curriculum. I think that education is the fundamental to any civil society. And I think that it's important that we all understand one another so that we can learn to work well with each other and decrease discrimination. And that's the reason why our reporter Chloe and Paige, our editor, joined makeup artist, writer and model Umber Gary to discuss non-binary awareness and the challenges of the North and South divide. Take a listen to the discussion. I promise you it was really informative. 
Hi, I'm Chloe Taylor, and today we're discussing the topic non-binary. In short, non-binary is when a person identifies as something outside the regular gender binary. This encompasses identifying as somewhere between male and female or not in binary at all. Today with me, I have Paige. Hi, I'm Paige. I'm an editor for Youth Rising. I'm from Sunderland and I'm non-binary. And Umber. Hi, I'm Umber and I'm a makeup artist, a writer, a speaker and I'm (laughs) non-binary. So Umber, obviously this is a learning experience for a lot of people right now who are listening um, if you don't know what non-binary is already. What is your definition or the definition that you give people about non-binary? It's just not being male, female, man, woman, either being a mix of the two or not being either at all, uh, existing completely outside of it. Outside of the idea of man, woman, male, female. How do you identify? I identify as agender, which is which fits with outside of rather than in between. So I don't really associate or connect with the idea of being a man or being a woman. Paige, how do you identify then? Is your definition the same as Umber's or do you have a different personal de- definition of non-binary um, for you? It's pretty much similar, yeah. I've actually not heard the term agenda before. When I was doing my research, when I found out what non-binary was, I just I found that it was something outside of a gender norm. So it's not male, not female. It's separate to transgender, because a lot of people will assume it's the same. It's kind of like I've got no gender at all. And that's how I feel. When you say no gender, that actually... It, that is what um, why I picked the word agender for myself because mm-hmm. I felt the same that it was no gender rather than a mix. But a lot of uh, non-binary people are transgender, so it kind of like most of the people I know who are non-binary consider themselves to be transgender mm-hmm. as I well. Didn't know. Yeah, it's. I think it's complicated for a lot of people because a lot of non-binary people, if they don't do certain things to change themselves physically, they don't feel as though they're transgender. But a lot do. Yeah. Yeah. So, Umber or Paige, feel free to jump in. Why do you think it's important, especially all over the country, all over the world, um, that people be more educated on gender non-binary? I think it's important because a lot of people in my family, my friends, people at college, have been offensive and quite ignorant without meaning to be because they just they have no idea what it was. I always knew I felt different, but then when I actually found out on social media, I had no idea because it was never educated anywhere wasn't told in school but it was always male female which one are you going into so I feel like there needs to be more awareness did you feel like you needed to educate your family yourself on kind of how you were feeling like did they really just not get it did they kind of warm up to the fact or my family they were really supportive and all that but didn't get it at first I mean to be fair I didn't fully get it at first but we like kind of learned together we did a lot of research we figured out how I felt and it just all worked out with education I think people need to be more educated I always think about non-binary people who are out there who don't know how to put words to how they're feeling or they feel really alone so I think education for me is I always um I'm thinking about those people and how like Paige you said that you didn't you were figuring it out with them and learning with them and a lot of people deal with that and maybe their lives could be a bit easier a bit faster if they could learn about that a bit younger and also like I think it makes the more people hear about something the more they can relate to it, even if they're not non-binary. Because um, I don't think everyone feels uncomfortable with themselves in some way. And um, 
there are certain things that definitely I think it's very fluid. So like a lot of people who aren't non-binary can relate and then maybe they won't be so scared of non-binary people. I agree completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When did both you kind of realise that you, you didn't fit into the regular gender but like norm like what was your thought process like how did you know that you identified as something else for me I think race has a lot to do with it because I grew up in Richmond which is a a very white place in London and um, I didn't really have anyone at school that looked like me and I felt constantly like I was failing at being a girl like I was constantly being told that I looked like a man and that like there was a lot of bullying and stuff to do with race but it also intertwine with gender quite a lot and I think a lot of people of colour feel this way that they're kind of always trying to reach a gender that doesn't isn't possible because it's based on whiteness so I think that was very confusing for me and um, eventually when I met other people that identified as um, non-binary when I was at university that was when I was able to use the words but I think I really knew for as long as I could remember that I was not a girl and it just didn't make sense for me and that all of it was made up and it all just seemed like very fictitious and very like silly to me, the whole girl thing. Like I just kind of was like, okay, yeah, fine, I'm a girl. Like I'll go on that side of the room when you say girls on that side, but it just doesn't feel very true. Yeah. How did that make you feel then? Obviously when you thought I definitely don't fit into this category, but people might not get it. Like how did that make you feel emotionally? Relieved, I think, actually. Obviously there are ups and downs with everything, but the more you in general in life get to know who you are, and meet people who are like you and read books by people who are like you and listen to podcasts with Mm. with people who are like you, the less lonely you feel, the more hopeful you feel. And that's just a very human thing, just... It's a relief. Yeah. And and Paige, what about you? How how was your experience with how you were feeling? How did you go about discovering the fact that you were... I'd like to use the word different, but obviously you were just discovering yourself. Yeah. It's only been like a year and a half since I identify as not being male, female. So it's still quite new for me. But I feel like all throughout my childhood, I'd play with boy toys and I'd be told, like, oh, well, why are you playing with boy toys? By other people, not my family, by the way, they're really good with it and stuff. And I I remember once I dressed up as Bob the Builder instead of, like, a princess <laughs> or something. And it's things like that looking back where I'm like, I never truly felt like I was a female and I never really felt introvert, but I didn't know any difference. I'd say, oh, yeah, I'm a female because I look it but I didn't really know there was another option. But it's only really a year and a half ago in which I found it on social media and I was like, oh, what's non-binary? I did a little research into it and I was like, that explains why I feel the way I feel. Paige, you discussed, like, you know, talking about Google and things because you really weren't sure and it's quite actually recent for you as well. Do you feel like where you're growing up in in Sunderland, there there might be groups you can go to, like a youth club? Because I know... Depending where you go in the country, there are like more and more things being done. Like, was it just the case of, you know, finding out for yourself or? There was youth groups and stuff, but there was a long waiting list to get in. You had to do a lot of different steps. Oh, really? You had to be like, um, you've got to confirm and then you've got to know what you are already. You can't just go, at least from what I found, obviously there might be others. But from the ones I found, um, I had to like know that I was wasn't male female and then there wasn't like I'm confused it was there 
it was the support for, if you already know, if that makes sense. That's a bit mad, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because really, those support groups are kind of meant for people who are kind of struggling with the fact yeah. that like they really don't know who they are. Maybe they just need to talk to other people to kind of discover themselves. So I find that really strange, the fact that you've kind of got to go through like a checklist to, yeah. to see if you can be yeah. accepted when you might actually in yourself not feel accepted at all. Mm-hmm. Which I, is really weird. I think that's probably one of the points where London is mm-hmm. easier for certain people because there's quite a lot going on here. So I was too old or too didn't know what was going on to the point where at the point where I found certain groups. So now I know about like gendered intelligence, mermaids, and um, there's a place called Mosaic in Brighton. But like everything's quite close to London, and um, I've done stuff with them where I've not been someone who's seeking support but I'm helping the organisation and I know that they um, welcome people who are under the label questioning and they have like families come I've been to picnics and things so I think actually London there's probably a lot more um, there's a lot more opportunity for under 25s yeah that kind of highlights doesn't it like a sort of divide and kind of acceptance and um like you know being more open like the south obviously london like you're describing seems a lot more open than the north where me and Paige live like Paige, how did that make you feel knowing that you've not really got that um support around you like obviously you've got some but left out a lot of the time because i just it makes it feel like a bit rubbish because i don't have that and it's like because you're in london you've had all that support and when i'm in sunland and I've not had that, so I've had to find out on social media. I've been looking at all these. I've not been able to go for picnics and stuff. I've been worrying and thinking, oh, what's happening? Uh, going on Instagram, looking at Bex Taylor Klaus, that type of person, and thinking, oh, well, this is makes sense. This is what I'm like. And then I've not been able to go out and socialise about it. Mm-hmm. I've got to do my own research alone. So it, it's it's a lot harder. Yeah, I think when I was younger, Facebook was a lot more active and there was groups for like different areas. So you could find people kind of in any category of what you were looking for. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I would advise people to use Facebook more because it's good for things like that. And and to go on the websites and email those people, because I know those people who run those groups, you know, who run gendered intelligence. I've spoken to their, their regular people who were 17 year old trans and non-binary people mm-hmm. once. And so they, they get an email saying, hey, I'm in Sunderland and it's really hard they'll probably know people who you can get in touch with that are nearby or they'll say, actually, we've got this fund for people to come down and we don't use it very much because no one gets in touch. I hear that a lot too. I went to my doctor's office and I asked if they knew any, with obviously being an actual medical thing, if they knew any uh, groups or anything that would do this type of thing, that talked about non-binary. And they asked my mum if I was sure that oh. it was non-binary or if it was a phase oh. and we're like oh are you sure are you sure it's not just a phase and then about my sexuality as well like are you sure about that mm. and that is just it's you can't ask someone that it's not fair and it made me feel like oh my god what if it made me start doubting and feeling like oh well what if I'm wrong and all like that your feelings mm. were yeah. invalidated like you uh-huh. didn't feel like you were accepted yeah. doctors shouldn't be able to say things no. like that mm-hmm. you know they can't they can't say certain things to people and that should be in there with mm-hmm. things that they can't say to people because it's just crossing a line. Yeah. Um, you go to a doctor and they should assume that you're telling the truth unless they have evidence that you're not. Yeah. You know, and that's obviously very rare. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry that happened to you. But it does happen so much and it's 
That's why this is such a big issue. Mm-hmm. It's not like non-binary people are the problem. It's it's kind of that everybody else is the problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a gender clinic as well. Yeah. And you've got to go on a waiting list. And I've been on it for more than a year That now. infamous waiting list. Oh, uh-huh. oh, I've oh been on God. it for like a year over now. I've not heard back. I'm just waiting and waiting. That's all it is, yeah. I mean, I'm just going to say I'm uncomfortable with my boobs, but I don't... The only people who know that are my parents, my sister, and my really close friends, because I'm just... I'm embarrassed to tell people. It's very Mm. very personal to talk about your body. I shouldn't be embarrassed to tell people, but it's that type of thing in which it's something about, like, your body waste. It's just not accepted, and then... Um, I know people at college are probably going to listen to this and hear this. You're very but brave. At this yeah. point, I don't care because I don't feel comfortable having breasts. Yeah. Mm. I don't feel comfortable having things like periods, that type yeah. of thing. And I don't like the fact that my body's capable of making a baby because mm. it's like everything about my body is screaming, you're a female, you've got to be a female, act like a female. And I hate that, so I want to do something about it. But to do that, I've got to be on a massive waiting list for mm. over a year, hearing nothing back. Mm. And I just, I've just got to sit and accept it. Mm. And like, oh, I'm getting a bit emotional, but like sometimes I'll sit Dance. in front of a mirror. Sorry. And I like, I'll look at myself and I'll be like, this isn't me. I, this isn't who I am. I don't belong in this body. And I get really bad thoughts about that. Yeah. And I know other people will too, but they're just too scared to come out and see it. Like I would have been, I wasn't even planning on seeing anything like this. But it's it's just such a big deal, and people need to know that's okay. And that if you have a, if you've got a female body, mm. but you don't identify as female, and you've got boobs, or like for a male with mm. all them and all that, it's okay not to want them, and it's okay you're not being like it's nothing wrong with that. You're not on your own. I'm really glad to hear that because I didn't think there was any options. I just thought I had to deal with it. No, you absolutely don't have to mm-hmm. deal with it. You shouldn't um, have to yeah. deal with it either. You mm-hmm. really shouldn't. Yeah. Because uh, let me just say, like, that was really, really brave what you've just said. Mm. And, like I, like, I have so much respect for you because someone might be listening to this right now who is going through the same thing as you and obviously all the things that you've just said will really, really help. Well, I think today's discussion has been really, like, eye-opening for me personally. Um, Obviously, just because of where I'm from, there's not enough discussion. So it has been, like, a learning experience for me. What have you guys um, got out of this today? Um, I feel really, really relieved. I feel like a waste being lifted off, just telling you guys this type of things, mm-hmm. talking about it with people who aren't like my my besties, my close friends, or my family members. It's a big step. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it it feels really good to just be open about it, especially the fact that I could be helping someone. It's amazing. It makes us feel a bit jealous, to be fair. The fact that <laughs> London is a lot better than what you said, but. Mm-hmm. It makes us want to live in London too. <laughs> but uh, I'm just if you need really a place happy. to stay in London, you can come stay over. <laughs> I'll hit you up. <laughs> uh, I just I love the fact that I've been able to have this discussion. That this is a topic we can actually talk about and we can educate young people on. Um, it's really really good. I feel the same. I think I'm really inspired by you at your age being um, so confident and and open and vulnerable because it wasn't normal when I ten. 11 years ago yeah. when I was 17 that wasn't something that I was hearing about and I'm really inspired by that and um, I'm hopeful and I hope that people who aren't non-binary and who aren't trans will take the time to understand others because in history the people who've been marginalised um, 
trying to advocate for themselves has only gone so far. I think everybody else needs to realise that we're all in this together and they need to understand difference and not just push it aside. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm, I agree. I just want to say as well, for anyone actually listening to this, if you're in this situation, you're not alone. We're here. There's so many people online. There'll be people in your community who feel the same, who have people who know who feel the same, but they're just scared to come out. Trust me, you're not alone in this, and it will get better. It always gets better mm-hmm. if you stick around for long enough. So everything yeah. changes, everything changes. So just don't give up. Definitely don't mm-hmm. give up. That's the biggest thing. It's the biggest reason I would ever talk about this issue is because we lose so many people and um, just use the internet, use every resource possible that you can so that you can keep going and get to a really positive place in your life because the world needs needs us you know we're valuable people mm-hmm. yeah well thank you so much you guys for coming in and talking about it um, and thank you guys for listening as well i hope you enjoyed the podcast obviously follow umber on instagram and um just like the guy said don't feel alone like you're here for a reason and you've got plenty of support whether you know it or not Thank you so, so much to our reporter, Chloe, our editor, Paige, and our contributor, Umber Gary. Thank you so much for joining us on our eighth episode of Youth Rising by NTS. Now, we're so excited to tell you that we've been working so hard behind the scenes to keep this podcast going, even during the lockdown. So we're going to be following the social distancing rules, but we're going to be working individually to make audio pieces. And for our next episode, we're going to be looking at how the corona pandemic has affected our education, our future and our day-to-day lives. We want to continue to represent young people across England. And so that's why you're going to hear our daily diaries as we explore our new futures, even during turbulent times. In the meantime, if you haven't already, Listen to our episodes on fast fashion, meme culture, knife crime and the effects social media can have on our youth. And remember, stay safe and we're going to be back very soon. Oh, a massive announcement. If you signed up to NCS this summer or you're thinking of signing up, but you're worried about, you know, coronavirus and the impact that might have, make sure you go to wearencs.com slash coronavirus dash update to get all the information you need. Rising. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. By NCS.